friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. scariest steps I've ever taken. I'm like, please don't fall, please don't fall. I wore my flats, like no heels, just in case. Um, Okay, I'll warn you guys, I am not a speaker. Um, I hate the stage, actually. Uh, But here we are. Uh, If you're new here, please come back. Like Todd said, we've been here 14 years, and this is my first time I've ever spoken. So every 14 years, I guess, or so I'm here. But you know what? My grace is sufficient for you, as Jesus has promised, and his power is made perfect in our weakness. And so if speaking is my, if speaking is my weakness, then um, like Paul said, um, I will gladly boast all the more because that's where his power resides. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump in, and we're going to start. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll go from there. God, thank you that your word is living and active. This morning, may we come um, to you ready and waiting for whatever your spirit has to say for each of us individually. Draw us nearer to you as we study the life of Uriah's wife. I pray that... um, This is more than a story to our ears, but it's confirmation to our hearts um, of who you are to us so that we um, just may know you more deeply. Amen. Okay, so like I said, I'm not a speaker, and I'm shaking, number one. And number two, um, I think in like speaking 101, you're told to like start off with a really big, like fun story, but... I'm starting off in a list in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's real exciting. (laughs) Um, So in Matthew 1, 6, we see, and and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So... Who is the wife of Uriah, and why is she not named? Well, if you flip to 2 Samuel 11, we see in the very beginning, um, in the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? So the text tells us that Uriah's wife is Bathsheba. So who's heard of Bathsheba? That's a name that we've heard of a little bit more, right? She's that temptress woman that 
stole the heart of the, the, the heart of David, the man after God's own heart, and let him into sin, right? Uh, that's the story we hear a lot about Bathsheba. And I think we hear that story because a lot of the times we hear it through David's perspective. But today I want to look at it through Bathsheba's perspective. Um, because I think we will see that through this angle, it's a mistake that was actually never initiated by her, um, but was invited by David. So the wife of Uriah tells a story of heartbreak wrapped with scandal and shame. But no matter how messy the story, how deep the sin, how impactful it is, Bathsheba's life is actually a beautiful redemption story. And I think we'll see about how, we'll see an example of how God is always making it, making our lives right. Um, okay, so let's go back. Let's dig into the text. We'll go back to the very beginning. So we read in verse 1 that in the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So immediately we see that usually this is a time when the kings are off to war. Um, but for whatever reason, David decided to remain in Jerusalem. So immediately we see that something's going on with David. There's something inside of him where he's like, mm, I don't feel like, I'm, I think I'm good here. I'm going to stay behind. Um, okay, so now let's look at Bathsheba's position. Um, one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David is on the rooftop, right? And again, we actually, a lot of times we hear that Bathsheba is the one on the rooftop. We actually don't see this in the text. Um, we do know that she is bathing. But here's the deal. She's not tanning her birthday suit on a roof, right? She's not hanging out in bubble baths with bath salts and Epsom salt. Um, in fact, I think when we read further down, we see that she is purifying herself from um, as a monthly ritual. So I did a little digging on that. And according to Jewish practice, that actually still takes place today, um, a mikvah is a ritual bath designed for the Jewish rite of purification. So in a mikvah, um, according to the law of Moses, a certain percentage of the water must be derived from natural source like a river or a lake or rain. Um, and according to the law of Moses, once a month, the women had to purify themselves um, in a mikvah. So there's a good chance that Bathsheba was actually in the act of being obedient to the law of Moses. 
And if that's the case, then we see two polar opposites. We see David, who is in a place where he's not supposed to be, and we see Bathsheba, who is in a place where she is being obedient to the Lord. So I want you to also pay special attention in this text, because here's where it all goes down. We see that David is abusing his use of power. He inquires about her, and he finds out that he knows exactly who she is. Both her father, Eliam, and her husband, Uriah, are actually a part of his mighty men. So he's really close to this family. Um, and actually, I, I don't, it's not mentioned here, but Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, is, um, is his, like, counselor, his his counselor, his mentor almost. Um, and then when you look at, I highlighted in red, when you look at David's actions, you see that um, he saw a very beautiful woman and he took. And that's, when you look at the Hebrew scriptures, it becomes even clearer. And I have that post, I have that read here. So he saw a woman, she was good in appearance, and so David sent messengers and took her. It sounds a lot like someone else who's fallen in temptation. Does that ring a bell to anybody? In Genesis 3, 6, um, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took some and ate it. So right up front, we see how the author is portraying David. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's in a place where his heart isn't postured to the Lord, um, but rather towards himself. And as a result, he's living out of a place of pride and entitlement. Okay, so now we can only be as clear as the Bible is clear about this. And I want to be sure that we aren't filling in the gaps with our own story. Um, we want to read from the Bible and not into it. So was... Bathsheba seducing David? No. According to this context, she was not. There's also, however, on the opposite end, there's also no indication that David applied force or violence. So was it consensual? Um, it's impossible to say how, how interested Bathsheba is because we just don't get that side. But what we do know is that in this time, women were viewed as property. And when a king has summoned you, um, there's a big difference of property, what's, what, you, what you want as property versus what you are expected of from the king. And so um, there's a massive abuse of power here. And the Bible clearly condemns David in this. Okay, so to summarize, what happens next? Um, she tells David she's pregnant. He's, he calls in Uriah, her husband. He tries to get Raya, Uriah to spend the night with Bathsheba. And he's like, no, I won't do it. So then he tries to get Uriah drunk and he still won't do it. And then so David's like at his wit's end. And he's like, how do I cover this sin? And so um, he sends a note with Uriah to Joab. And in that note, it says to put Uriah on the front lines to have him murdered. And in verse 26, we read, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She's heartbroken. 
but remember Dave, David is still working, right? He still has a pretty big send to cover and um, time is sensitive. And so he's still trying to cover that. Um, so he brings Bathsheba in and he marries her. And at this point, if you don't know the full story, then you're like, oh, now she gets to be queen. Uh, that was so nice of David. But really, she's wife number eight, and she's just been invited to live with the murderer of her husband. Um, so it's not as glorious as it sounds. And then we see in verse 27, but the thing that David has done displeased the Lord. And sadly, Bathsheba's heartbreak doesn't end here. But I think this moment is really important because I think this is when, at this broken moment, we see God step in as her rescuer. We have the zoomed out version. We know how the story ends, but she doesn't. She is in the midst of mourning and heartbreak. And at this point, you're like, where do I go from here? So what do you do with this unsurmountable grief? What do you do when your entire identity has been ripped from you and you are left to mourn on the floor? I think she did all that she could do. And I think that was she cried out to God. I think she cried to him in the same way that we read of Hagar crying out um, in the desert. I think she cried out to him the same way that um, Israel cried out from Egypt. And he heard her. Because when God... When God's people cry out, he draws near. It's who he is. I don't know if you guys can read that. Hopefully it's kind of small. But here are just some psalms where some people are crying out to God. I'm going to read them with you. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Psalm 18, 6. Psalm 91. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And then in Psalm 116, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy, because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When he was brought low, he saved me. So I want to clarify that God as a rescuer is not God as a superhero. He's not going to come in and swoop us away from the pain. And we can see that in the Psalms here. But rather, God's rescue looks like his love drawing near. He loves to be with us. He loves to begin to make right of all the wrongs and to begin, to creating, to, to begin creating the process of um, restoring and creating beauty from ashes, to begin sanctifying us. And that is why he sent Jesus, because Jesus is his ultimate rescue plan. 
that Jesus allows us to be with him. And so going back to the story of Bathsheba, it is at this point that God sends his prophet Nathan. I think Nathan is part of God's rescue plan. And um, Nathan comes to David and he gives David a parable. And um, the parable goes, I'm going to summarize it. Basically, there's a poor man and there's a rich man. And the rich man has a herd of flocks, there's tons and tons of sheep. Um, the poor man has, has one small ewe lamb. Obviously, in this story, uh, David is the rich man, Uriah is the poor man. And I love how God portrays Bathsheba as one small ewe lamb. You see... Um, just God's love for her, and a lot of times a lamb in, in the Bible symbolizes innocence. Um, and so, you, so we hear in the parable about how um, much the poor man loved his, his lamb, and um, loved it so much it was like a daughter to him. It actually says that in the text. And a traveler comes to town, and um, when the traveler comes, the rich man wants to provide a big feast. And so rather than take from his own flock, he takes the poor man's small ewe lamb and, um, and creates a, prepares a banquet for the traveler with that lamb. So this is David's reaction. He's angry, um, outraged by the story. And he, he yells, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. I picture this to be uh, Nathan's face while David's going on. <laughs> because his next words are, you are the man. So then God has to become real literal with David. He didn't get the parable. Um, but when God... But when Bathsheba couldn't speak for herself, God stood up and spoke for her. Um, so sometimes when we forget who he is, we respond to feelings instead of faith. And we see that in both David and Bathsheba. So David is responding by feelings. He's trying to cover up his sin. He's spiraling deeper and deeper. He's angry. He becomes like angry and outraged at a parable. Meanwhile, we see Bathsheba responding with faith. Um, she's letting God be her defender. And this point is critical because I think it's at this, this point, or I, it is at this point that David repents. Um, and there's still sadness. There's still consequence to the sin. Uh, the baby that they had together actually dies a few days later. But this time we see a different David. We see a David that comforts Bathsheba. And here's where God not just becomes her rescuer, but also her promise keeper. So soon after Solomon is born, and we see that the Lord loved him. And this baby would someday grow up to take David's place as king. And I think somewhere in the midst of her rescue, um, we, she learns to trust God at an even deeper level because actually what we don't see in the text is that a lot of time has passed. Um, it wasn't just baby dies, Solomon's born nine months later. He's actually the fourth of um, David and Bathsheba's. So 
a lot of time, and I think God has just been working in her heart over time, that she would someday be the woman to raise Solomon, the king that was called the wisest king that ever was. But what's I love about this is that greater than him, she plays a role in the promised king, our king, the one that would be called um, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. So after this point, we actually really don't see much of Bathsheba, not until um, she re-enters the story when David is on his deathbed. And um, one of his sons, Adonijah, is trying to manipulate his way into the kingdom. So in 1 Kings chapter 1, Bathsheba approaches the king and reminds him of his promise. We see that Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So we see Bathsheba reminding the king of his promises. And you guys, we have a king that makes promises too. And he loves to be reminded of them. So what if, like Bathsheba, in times of trouble or grief, instead of focusing on the problems, we turn our face to the person of the promise. Because when you trust that God is working for you, it's a lot easier to walk with him, knowing that he is paving the way. It's a lot easier to abide in him, um, knowing that he wants to be near you. And our king doesn't forget his promises. Sadly, though, if anything, we are the ones that quickly forget. So I listed out just, a, just some of the thousands of promises um, that our king gives. Um, it would be, if you can take a picture, you could use this as a tool just to remind you of later. Um, but I just wanted to read some over you. The Lord will fight for you. God's mercies are new each morning. God will renew your strength. The Lord will help you. The Lord will be with you. God's love will not be shaken. No weapon forged against you will prevail. You are free from darkness. God will forgive your sin. The Lord will never forsake you. Amen? Okay. And then finally, through Bathsheba's life, we see that God is her redeemer. This is my favorite part. So we have watched Bathsheba rise from a place of shame to, to a seat of honor. And all of that has happened in her life throughout the loving grace and faithfulness of God. He has literally placed a crown on her head because she is now the queen mother. Um, in 1 Kings 2.19, David has passed and Solomon is now a king. And when Bathsheba enters the room, the, the king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne, and had a throne placed for the king's mother. So she sat down at his right hand. And we see that God has literally given her, crowned her with a new identity. 
I love that when Jonathan last week was talking about Tamar, he referenced um, the garment that, um, let me, let's see, the garment um, of, oh, here it is. Instead of ashes, a garment of praise, instead of, a, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I'll get there, sorry, words are hard. Um, but here, along in that same verse of Isaiah 60, we see that he, with Bathsheba, he placed a crown of beauty instead of ashes. So I love that God just brought that together. We see the garment with Tamar, and then we see the crown with Bathsheba. So has anyone ever heard of Proverbs 31? The Proverbs 31 woman? We all love her. She's perfect. Um, so, um, what I love about Proverbs 31 and studying Bathsheba is that it begins with, in the words of King Lemuel, a pronouncement that his mother taught him. So, most scholars believe that King Lemuel was actually Solomon. It's like his alter ego, like Chris Gaines is to Garth Brooks. Um, and if that's the case, then it was actually Bathsheba who inspired Proverbs 31. So what I love is how freeing that is for the Proverbs 31 woman, because then it's not just a checklist of how to be perfect or all the things that a woman needs to get done for her family, but rather it's inspired by Bathsheba, a woman who was not perfect, who the Lord took um, out of mourning and ashes and brought to beauty. And she is the portrayal of what a woman of wisdom and virtue looks like over time when she's learned to live a life walked out with God. I think we see in Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, a little bit of Bathsheba's voice. Speak up for those who have no voice for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. She's speaking about that woman that she remembers from so long ago. So we see that um, Bathsheba in her life has suffered the mistakes of someone else's sin. And God redeemed her story, not just through Solomon, though that absolutely would have been enough, but multiplied a hundred times that through another that would come and suffer the mistakes of all man's sin, which is Jesus. Okay. Good news is when you have a speaker that um, is very new, uh, message is a little bit short. So I will have the band go ahead and come back up. Um, and we're going to do things a little bit differently. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to play, um, actually, no, Sarah is going to sing Lauren Daigle's Rescue. So while I was prepping for this sermon, um, this, this song kept coming up, and I couldn't get it out of my head because I felt like it was the Lord singing it over Bathsheba. Um, but I think more importantly, he wants to sing this song over you. 
So rather than like how we usually do, we stand and immediately sing, the kids come back in, and then um, we go and have lunch. I want you to begin with just sitting and, and listening to the words. Um, I just want them to wash over you. And while you pray and while you listen, I would love um, for you to just talk to Jesus and for you to ask him and invite him in to be who you need him to be in this part of your story where you are right now. Is it a rescuer? Is it a promise keeper? Is it a comforter, a defender, a friend, a redeemer? Father, you are compassionate and gracious and abounding in faithful love and truth. Thank you that you are a God that genuinely loves us and shows us that love time and time and time again. With you, we are never overlooked. We are never cast aside. We are never forgotten. We are never too far gone. I pray for the hearts in this room and that you whisper your promises. Whisper your promises to them now. And let those promises sink deep into their hearts. And may we find our complete identity in you and you alone.